All right, these words from Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Father, we thank you that you are shouting over us with shouts of joy, even though we don't feel worthy of such interest or concern. We are truly grateful to you. We know, Lord, that you have drawn us into your presence, and we pray that your presence will be manifested clearly in our midst here this morning. We thank you for the power of the Spirit, which enables us to live each day and to walk each day in your strength. We pray that you will bless our study of your word this morning, and I pray your special blessing on each life here. Father, you know the individual needs and needs that are part of the families of each person here, and I pray that you will meet those needs. Glorify your name in our midst here this morning, I pray. And as your word is proclaimed here in the services and the various classes, we ask that it will be honored and many will be drawn to you. In Christ's name, amen. We are in the 14th chapter of the book of Judges. I'd like to read again this morning, beginning with verse 1. Then Samson <clears throat> went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Then his father and his mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people? that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she looks good to me. However, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, for he was seeking an occasion against the, against the Philistines. Now at that time the Philistines were ruling over Israel. Let me again just uh, point out briefly the geography here. We are, we're dealing with the Sauric River Valley, which is right here. This is the Sauric. It comes from the highlands of Judea and flows into the Mediterranean, south of Joppa. The Philistines occupied, at the time we're talking about, occupied the region from about south of Joppa all the way down into here. And they were located primarily at cities such as Gaza, and Ashkelon, and Ashdod, and Ekron, and Gath. Those were the main cities where they were located in a kind of a pentopolis, a kind of a, a confederation of cities. Now, Timnah is in the Sorek Valley just over the border this way, and Zorah, from which Samson came, is just over the border uh, on this side, over here, not too far from Beth Shemesh, right up here. So there's maybe maybe 10 miles between the two cities, five to 10 miles, something like that. And so we're, we're looking at this region right here. So this is the tribal area of Dan, and we're right adjacent to the tribal area of Judah, which is over here. And Benjamin is sandwiched in over in this area. So you have three tribes fairly close together right in this area where Samson is uh, operating. And as we are, we'll be looking next week in particular, we'll be talking about how this will impact the Judeans also, not just the people of Dan, but also the people of Judea. Now, last week I had, I had, I was just so busily running along here, I didn't even notice that we had run off our outline, and so we're kind of already into this new outline that I've given you today. 
Uh, again, at the top, it mentions the five-city uh, Pentapolis, the confederation that I just pointed out to you here. And we already read about the apostasy that Israel had experienced. And this, of course, precedes the coming of the angel to visit Manoah and the promise of the child. And so we talked about the angelic visit to Manoah's wife and then to his wife and Manoah and the promise of a son who was to be a Nazarite. Now he has grown up. His name, Samson, as best as we can tell, meant something like sunny, as I have printed on there. Sunny as in a bright sunny day. A, a kind of a joyful name to be given, given to a child. And I, I mentioned to you that the scripture makes it quite clear that Samson was not going to be a shofat like any of the other shofats had been previously. That is, men who gathered great armies and led armies to victory. He would be a solitary champion. He'd be a champion in the medieval sense of the word. Somebody on his, on his horse in, in his shining armor who with, with his battle axe and his sword and, and his uh, lance could hold a bridge against a whole attacking army kind of concept here. Of course, none of them in the medieval world were quite as great as... As Samson, of course. But Samson would do it with a little less accoutrements than that. Like, as we'll find out, just himself and the jawbone of a donkey. You know, it's pretty uh, primitive uh, implement here. And, in fact, even his bare hands would be useful. So we're, we're operating here in a very small piece of geography between Zara and Timna. We're operating in maybe 10 miles of uh, land in terms of an east-west direction. Why he went to Timnah is not told for us in this passage. It doesn't say he went to Timnah because he had a business transaction. It doesn't say he went to Timnah because he wanted to buy some land. It just says he went to Timnah. And while he was there, he became enamored of this Philistine woman. Now, how he met her, did he just run into her in the street? Was she sitting in the veranda, you know, with her little fan in front of her face, you know, uh, kind of allure? I, well, we don't know. We can imagine all kinds of things. But he encountered this woman, and he, what, some enchanted evening across a crowded room, you're going to meet a stranger, you know? And, and he saw this woman, and it was love at first sight, I guess you could say. Actually, in Samson's case, I think it's more lust at first sight. But he was pretty good at that. He went home, and of course we read the passage, and, and it always brings kind of a, a, a little bit of humor to us, except it's kind of, kind of crude and blunt, where he says, get her for me. You know, He goes home to his father and mother and says, I've seen this beautiful woman. I'd like to marry her. Now go get her for me. Kind of like, well, we are your parents. We're not exactly your servants here. How, how are we going to operate here? They, of course, as we noted last week at the end of class, pro protested rather strongly against this choice. Is there no one in, in our clan? Is there no one in all of Israel that you could choose rather than this, this daughter of an uncircumcised Philistine? And of course, as I mentioned, the concept of impressing upon him that these Philistines are uncircumcised means they are outside the family of God. But of course, it doesn't really matter to Samson. He displayed a willfulness here. He said, no, I want her. He also displayed a terrible weakness here for physical beauty. He sees the woman. He's drawn to the woman. He knows nothing of the character of the woman. And, and yet he wants to marry her. Well, God, of course, knew all this. And the passage does tell us in verse 4, however, his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord. 
for he was seeking an occasion against the Philistines. Now, when we look at that, we have to, I think, understand that God very well knew what Samson's weaknesses were. And he used them to accomplish his purposes. This does not mean that God willed Samson to be headstrong, selfish, and a woman chaser. God did not make Samson to do those things. He created him, of course, with the capacity to do that. He creates all of us with the capacity to do all kinds of things, good and evil. It doesn't mean that God condoned those characteristics. It doesn't mean that God went down and guided Samson's eyes. Whoop, whoo, there she is. You know, you want her, Samson. No. This was Samson's doing. But God worked through it to accomplish his own will. In applying this to ourselves, I think we understand that God can accomplish his will in spite of our sin and failure. God can do that because God can do all things. But it doesn't mean that that excuses our sin. I think we would all agree to that. God may bring about his purposes through us despite our failure, but that doesn't mean we won't reap what we sow, and it doesn't mean that we will receive the blessing that we would have received had we done God's will God's way. As we shall see in looking at the life of Samson, his life will be one of constant turmoil. He will die tragically while he's relatively a young man. And as I think about that, it reminds me of, of course, of the story we all pretty know well, all know pretty well, that Alexander the Great was such a man. Who, who led this, this army of Macedonians and Greeks to conquer almost the then-known world, at least over to the Indus River, and, and then, then to die tragically at the age of 33 in drunkenness. Well, it's not a terribly different story here about Samson, except, of course, in the case of Alexander, we don't have a man who was seeking God or had been appointed by God to, to be the deliverer. But God did use that. God did use that. Because what Alexander did was bring that whole part of the world under Hellenistic influence. And so when Jesus was walking on the earth, Jesus was born into a world that had been Hellenized, that is, Greekified, if you will, and everybody could hear the gospel in a, in a language they understood because everywhere you went, there was at least somebody who knew Greek. And so the New Testament, of course, was written in Greek. The Lord could have used a godly, faithful Samson to accomplish every bit of what he did accomplish, and I believe even more than he accomplished. And Samson could have experienced a life of inner peace, a life of joy, a life of contentment, had he walked in God's ways. He could have died as Abraham did. Now remember, Abraham wasn't exactly a saint on every occasion. But Abraham, we're told in, in Genesis, died at a ripe old age and satisfied with life. Satisfied with life. That's a, that's a great way to die. Satisfied that God has worked in you. Of course, every one of us on our deathbed would, would remember things certainly that we did in our life which we w wish we hadn't done and things which we wished we had done. But, but we have a sense, if we are, are dying in God's will, that we have served him and, and we're satisfied with moving on into his presence. But instead, how does Samson 
end his life. He ends it as a spectacle for his enemies. Oh yes, he will get his revenge, but he nevertheless is a spectacle for his enemies. And we also discover, of course, that he dies in an effort to avenge what? The loss of his eyes, which had been the stumbling block of his life. I suppose Samson couldn't have accomplished all that he did had he been blind from birth, but had he been blind from birth, he wouldn't have fallen into many of the things he fell into also. But God, of course, knew what he was doing. Well, let's, let's read on uh, from verse 5. Then Samson went down to Timnah. Now, whenever the scripture says down, it means downhill, okay? Not down south. We talk about down south, up north. That's a uh, that's our orientation. The scripture always means when it says down, downhill, up means uphill. It's slightly downhill from Zorah to Timnah. With his father and mother, and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came roaring towards him. And the spear of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a kid, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So he went down and talked to the woman, and she looked good to Samson. When he returned later to take her, he turned aside to look at the carcass of the lion, and behold, a swarm of bees and honey. Israel, as a geographical area, has basically the same identical climate as we have in California. The latitude is, is basically the same. The climate is the same. It's what is known as the CSA climate. That's a summer dry, very warm, water-influenced kind of climate, ocean-influenced climate. Dry summers. Dry summers are unique in the world. If, if somebody is born in California, you think, wow, you know, it's the way it's always supposed to be. It never rains on your picnic in the summertime. But in most of the world, it does rain on your picnic in the summertime. Dry summers are unique to central California, central Chile, the Mediterranean Basin, a couple of spots in southern Australia and in South Africa, the Cape Town area. Those are the only places in the world that have that kind of climate, the same kind that we have in central California, the Central Valley of California. And so because of that, grapes grow well there. Grapes grow well there. And so there are many vineyards in Israel back then, and, and there still are vineyards in Israel today in many places in Israel. Grapes are grown. Wine is produced. Wine, of course, was the main drink for people in the ancient history of Israel. So we understand that uh, this, this whole scenario is, is a very logical scenario. His parents were very unable to reason with Samson. And so they finally gave in to his request to seek the hand of this Philistine woman. And so they said, well, if this is who you're going to marry, we've got to make the proper arrangements. You've got to do it the right way. So they all got together and they traveled down from Zorah to Timnah in order to speak to the parents of the Philistine woman, to make the proper arrangements for this wedding. Now, we need to remember, as we go along here, we're not only talking about a marriage that crosses religious lines, it crosses ethnic lines, it crosses cultural lines. The Philistines are totally unrelated to the Israelites. They are of a completely different ethnic background. They are Indo-European in their background. They are not Semitic in their background. Their, their culture is different and of course their religion is different. So this is a major step that Samson is taking and we can understand the reticence of his parents. 
When they arrived on the outskirts of Timnah, Samson stayed behind while his parents went in to make the proper arrangements. He was not supposed to be there at the time, you know, talking away with a girl while his parents are making the arrangements. So he stays behind. Well, he's got nothing to do. He's standing around waiting for his parents to get done. So he gets hungry. He goes into the nearest vineyard there looking for some grapes to eat. A very logical thing to do. Now, we're told in this passage that while he was in the vineyard, a lion came roaring out at him. Now, you can walk very safely through the vineyards of Israel today and you will not be attacked by a lion. Lions today are found almost exclusively south of the Sahara Desert. But at the time we're talking about, lions ranged all the way from southern Europe clear over to India, as well as all through Africa and the whole Middle Eastern area. They had a much larger range than they have today. I'm talking about true lions, the, what we call an African lion, that type of lion. I'm not talking about cougars or some other type of cat. There are, and some of you have probably seen these if you've looked at books dealing with the ancient Near East, there are bas-reliefs that come to us from the Assyrian culture, from the Babylonian culture, from the Persian culture. Bas-reliefs, you know, raised carvings on walls that depict lion hunts that show the king out in his carriage and he's shooting an arrow at a lion or a lion attacking somebody. Lions are frequently depicted. In fact, the great gate, the great entranceway to Babylon at the time of Nebuchadnezzar the Great was called the Lion Gate. It's in the museum of the Pergamon Museum in Berlin this very day. And you can go there and see the very gate that was at the entranceway to Babylon in the days of Nebuchadnezzar, the days of Daniel. And all along that entranceway are little images of lions. So lions were commonly known. The scripture tells us, for example, that David would slay a lion while defending his father's sheep. We're also told in Psalm 17, David is, of course, speaking metaphorically there when he describes his enemies. And he says, he is like a lion that is eager to tear as a young lion lurking in hiding places. So, he goes into the vineyard. He doesn't know there's a lion in there. He goes to pick some grapes, and this lion springs out at him. Dinner, the lion is thinking. Wrong choice of menu for the lion. The scripture tells us that the Spirit of God rushed upon Samson and gave him the strength to tear the lion apart. And how does he do it? The scripture says he tears the lion apart like he could tear a kid, meaning, of course, a baby goat. And from this, we must either derive that he very cleanly killed this lion or he washed up. <laughs> I don't know where he would have washed up. Maybe in the Sorek. It flows right through there. But, and on top of that, the lion must not have done him any harm. No bites, no scratches, no puncture wounds, because otherwise his parents would have said, oh, what happened to you? I thought you went some grapes. What did you do? Run into a windmill? And, you know, because he would have been just a mess, you would think. But somehow God enabled him just to, you know, this thing and uh, either do it bloodlessly, as far as getting it on him is concerned, or wash it off. It has to be one or the other because his folks were maybe elderly, but I don't think they were so old that they wouldn't see this guy dripping with blood, you know, after he came out of the vineyard. Whoa, you really went after those grapes, didn't you? Kind of idea. <laughs> so that's a good point, actually. 
it, it, so often when you read the scripture, questions like that come to your mind. Well, well wouldn't the natural outcome be this? <laughs> and yet it doesn't seem that that's true. What is also equally interesting is that as we read through the story of Samson, we don't particularly view him as a man of great humility. And yet, for some reason, he does not brag of this. He doesn't say, hey, Dad and Mom, you ought to see what I did back there. I mean, this big old lion jumped at me and I just ripped him in pieces. It'd be pretty hard to be quiet about that, I think, if you had just done that. Lions were considered to be very dangerous beasts. I mean, if you think about the medieval world, when they were always talking about the big bad wolf. Now, wolves are bad, but lions are worse. But he makes no comment to his folks. Now, this is the very first record in Scripture of Samson doing anything to demonstrate his strength. So this could be the first time that he did this, and it may have just surprised him. You know, it could be that he never had had the Spirit of God rush upon him with such might that he could just do that. And he probably goes, whoa, what did I just do? How did, how did this happen? I think he was in shock. And he didn't want to let anybody know, at least not prematurely, of what he could do. But it sure gave him a sense of uh, well-being when he faced the Philistines. Whatever the case, whatever were the details of all of this, the fact that he was alone when he did this, and that no one else knew of his encounter with the lion, not even his parents. This would play a very important role in his relationship to his new wife, as we'll see. Well, his parents successfully negotiated the wedding arrangements. And Samson now was free to go into town and talk to the girl, so he does. And again we read, the scripture says, and she looked good to him. I can almost see him just drooling, you know, as he goes away from this encounter. Apparently several months passed after the proper betrothal period had transpired, and Samson and his parents went back down to Timnah in order for the wedding to take place. We have to assume, of course, that messages had gone back and forth and they'd made arrangements for a specific time for the wedding to occur. What we discover, of course, about Samson is he's absolutely oblivious to the spiritual implications of what he's about to do. It doesn't mean anything to him. I think he, pro he anticipated marrying this woman like a kid anticipates a banana split. You know, I mean, this guy was, all he could think of was having this beautiful woman and all of its ramifications meant nothing, absolutely nothing to him. But his parents, on the other hand, his parents were under a cloud of uncertainty. They were dreading this whole thing. They were not only entering the territory of the hated enemy of Israel, the occupiers, or I should say the oppressors of Israel at this particular time, but they were going to be fraternizing with the enemy. I mean, with the enemy of God, the worshipers of Dagon, not the worshipers of Yahweh. Can you just think of all the various scenarios they played through their minds about how their son would one day be the deliverer and how he would live and, and, and be God's servant? This was probably not one of the scenarios that ever went through their minds. I don't think so. This was not a part of their hopes and dreams. For this, their only son, their only child, the child of promise, a Nazarite, 
who was not even supposed to touch anything having to do with grapes. And yet he went into the vineyard to eat grapes. The lion jumped on him and the Spirit of God came upon him to kill the lion. It was probably early summer when this event occurred, the initial event, the killing of the lion. And so in the meantime, the carcass laid there and the carcass rotted, the carcass disintegrated. And I think eventually what was left was basically the bones and maybe a little bit of mummified skin, just enough for the bees to say, whoa, good place to build a nest. Bees usually look for wild bees over there, usually look for hollow trees, they look for clefts in the rock, and here's a kind of, for all their purposes, a cleft in the rock, this cavernous body of a lion. Samson wanted to see if the body was still there. He hadn't forgotten his ill encounter with the lion several months before. So he decides to trot off into the vineyard to see if the lion was still there while his folks continued on towards Tim. Now, I don't know what he told his folks. Uh, I need to go in the vineyard for a while, you know, whatever he said to them. He left them and, and he went into the vineyard to look for the lion. And he found the carcass and he was amazed to discover the bees were, were at work there establishing a honeycomb within this lion's body. And so he reached in and Yes, he was oblivious to stings too, and grabbed some honeycomb out of there and ate it and caught up with his folks and shared the honey with them. Did they ask him, well, where did you get this? <laughs> probably not. They just assumed he probably found it in a tree or a cleft of a rock. No idea, of course, that he found it in the body of a lion. Verse 10, then his father went down to the woman and Samson made a feast there, for the young men customarily did this. And it came about when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. Then Samson said to them, let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within seven days of the feast, within the seven days of the feast, and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle, that we may hear it. And so he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. His father is, as you can imagine, very un unenthusiastic in making the final arrangements for this wedding. But he does, of course, give his blessing as reticent as it was to his son. And so Samson put on the seven-day wedding feast, or at least he put on the first part of the feast, which was supposed to be done by the groom. And that was usually a kind of a drinking party that was in the first phase of the wedding. Samson, however, had not brought any, any, any of his friends with him. Why was that? Well, Scripture doesn't tell us. Did it, was it that he had no friends? Or simply that he didn't bring them with him? But the bride's family was willing to provide him with his buddies that he needed to have during this first phase of the wedding celebration. And so they invited 30 young Philistine men to come and be his companion, and one of them even to be his best man. Possibly uh, somebody he already knew, of course. So they're having this party, and they're drinking. And Samson, I think, as an act of bravado, proposes a riddle, knowing that this riddle would be impossible to solve unless you knew what Samson had done in the last few months. How could you ever come up with this answer? It, it's, it's just 
a kind of an incredible thought, really. But he wanted to make the solution of the riddle a serious matter. In fact, an in-your-face challenge. And so he offers a wager. He says to the guys, there's 30 of you, if you can get my riddle, I will give each of you a change of clothing, a linen wrap, uh, a change of clothing. Now, by the way, it needs to be emphasized here. This just isn't like a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. You know? We're talking about festal robes. We're talking about party clothes. We're talking about fine linen, which was expensive. We're talking about inner clothes and outer clothes, a complete set uh, of Sunday go-to-meeting clothes is what we're talking about here. I will give you each a set if you guess my riddle, but if you don't guess my riddle by the end of the wedding celebration, then you each will give me a set of clothing. They probably thought of Samson a little bit like little Abner, you know. Here's this dumb Klux guy who's just a farmer. <laughs> what does he know? He's going to give us some riddle and it can't be that hard to figure out. And so they rather enthusiastically take up the challenge. Hey, give us your riddle. Apparently, this form of entertainment was not unusual, unusual in those days. You have to remember they had no electronic devices of any kind for entertainment. Back before electronic entertainment, there was a whole lot more human conversation that went on than tends to go on now. Nowadays, at some of the weddings I've been, or to the parties I've been to, the electronic entertainment so loud you can't talk to each other, you know, which is, uh, to me, kind of sad. The ancient Greeks, this was their practice, often, to entertain each other with riddles. Riddles, or enigmatic questions, serve as a major intellectual test. Nearly 150 years later, when the news of the great wisdom of Solomon spread through the Near Eastern world, there was a woman who came up from the south who was named the queen or titled the Queen of Sheba. And, and she came to Solomon, and the scripture tells us in 1 Kings chapter 10 that she, pro she tested his wisdom with riddles. She tested his wisdom with riddles. If you can figure these riddles out, then you've got to be a very wise person. And of course, what does she later say? She says, the half has not been told me of this man's wisdom and his wealth and of his glory. To the Philistines, it seemed like a favorable wager. They would only have to provide one set of Sunday go-to-meeting clothes each if they failed to solve the riddle. But Samson would have to provide 30 sets, one for each of the men there, if he failed. So we're talking about bankruptcy big time here if Samson does not succeed because um, Samson was not a man of wealth. His folks were just poor farmers and you know, money was nothing that he had much of and to buy 30 sunny go-to-meeting sets of clothing, inner and outer clothing, uh, that would be megabucks in those days or mega shekels. And as a result, he, he would have been bankrupt, but he was not planning to lose this wager. He couldn't figure any way that they would be able to understand or solve his riddle unless he let the cat out of the bag. Uh-huh, big unless. But he wasn't thinking about that part. For three days, we're told, the Philistines racked their brains and they tried to come up with an answer. How do you explain out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet? Easy for us, but not so easy for them. Well, let's read on and see what happened. Then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband, 
that he may tell us the riddle. Lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? And Samson's wife wept before him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and haven't told me. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told it to my father or my mother. Should I tell it to you? However, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. And it came about on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so hard. She then told the riddle to the sons of her people. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, you know, not far before the deadline, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? And Samson said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. <laughs> then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of them and took their spoil and gave the changes of clothes to those who had told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his literally best man. Good old Samson. The time was passing, and the solution to the riddle was not coming any clearer to the mind from the moment they had first heard it to this minute. They're halfway through the time now. And so the Philistine men will now demonstrate the true character of pagan people. They will go to his wife and they will threaten her. To a person who has no belief in God, there are no real moral rules. To win is the only goal. To, to understand that, quote, might makes right, the end justifies the means, all those other kinds of concepts. That is one of the reasons why, today, the ultimate result of the belief that we are all here as a result of blind chance, that there is no divine authority to which we are held accountable, the ultimate result of that is total anarchy, chaos, and immorality, and you cannot hold people to morality if there is no greater source of that moral teaching. And we're seeing the outworking of that in our society, all around the world, and specifically in our society. And I think we will continue to see it in ever-increasing levels as, as long as God is denied his existence or his right to, dem to demand obedience. They couldn't win the, nor the normal way, so cheating, violence, whatever it took, just so long as they avoided, avoided failure. So they accused his wife of inviting them to the party so that, he, so that they could become impoverished. Now, you, you understand that we're not just talking about a t-shirt and a pair of jeans, right? Obviously, even for them, only one set of clothing was going to be really hard for them to come up with. And so they threatened to burn her and her family if she doesn't extract the answer to the riddle out of Samson. I think she'd been attempting to get the answer out of Samson prior to this time. Because if you go back to the 17th verse, it says, however, she wept before him seven days while their feast lasted. So apparently she started on day one. Samson, tell me the answer to your riddle. But now she has only three days left to get the answer out of him or else she'll die. She now weeps and pleads hour after hour with increasing intensity. 
making him wish that he had never propounded the riddle in the first place. He kept telling her, I haven't even told my folks whom I've known all my life. Why should I tell you if I've only known you for a few months? But of course, no reasoning made any impact upon her and it wouldn't on you either if you were in her place because your only option, it would seem at least your only option was to get it out of him or she was going to die and her whole family too. Now there was another option, but I don't think she even thought of it. And we'll see what that was. So she pulled out all the stops. I mean, I think just, she, she just, emotion was coming out of her all over him, tears, and, and uh, she was telling him, you don't love me. If you loved me, you'd tell me the answer to the riddle. Well, what happens? On the seventh day, Samson says, okay, okay, I'll tell you. It says, because she pressed him so hard, Whoa, real big deal, Samson. I mean, you're going to be pressed hard by a thousand guys and you're going to kill them all with a jawbone of a donkey. But this, of course, is a different pressure. What this demonstrates is that Samson had a very dangerous chink in his armor. He couldn't withstand the cajoling of a beautiful woman. Should he have been suspicious? I think so. But, of course, I don't think he had much experience uh, with being a husband, none up to this moment anyway. And, but he should, have been ex he should have been suspicious at this constant intensifying badgering over just a silly little answer to a riddle. You know, it's not like, the, it's not like a life and death matter, you know. <laughs> well, yes, it was to her. And he didn't know that. He should have known that this is not just a normal woman's desire to know the normal things in the life of her husband. She's fearing death. So Samson's weakness is on display now for all because she trots right over to the 30 guys and says, this is the answer to the riddle. She betrayed her husband to the 30 groomsmen. Now, what was her other option? She could have told Samson that her life was threatened. She could have said, this guy, if you don't give me the answer, these guys are going to kill me. That would have been another option. But why didn't she take that option? Well, I think she didn't take the option, first of all, because she had no idea who Samson really was. They hardly knew each other. He was just a fast rusher here, you know? And as far as she knew, she didn't know anything about the lion. Of course, he, he told her the answer to the riddle, but did he explain all the details? Well, maybe or maybe not. But by then it was already too late, maybe. But another factor plays here. She is a Philistine. He is an Israelite. The Israelites are oppressed by the Philistines. The Israelites are looked down upon by the Philistines. She worships Dagon, not Yahweh. She's a child of the devil, not of God. And so she is blind to this other option or chooses not to take it or doesn't think it will matter or help her situation. So instead, she rats on him. What this does is further helps us to see how important the teaching is of Scripture that God gave to Moses and written in Exodus, which we read <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago, and which Paul tells us in Corinthians, that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. It is not just a little suggestion. It's a, it's a command because it's disastrous. And it was disastrous for Samson.
well, it was more disastrous for her, really, in the, long, in, in the short run, but for Samson it would be also in the long run because he would pursue yet another Philistine woman by the name of Delilah, and that would, of course, be his undoing. Well, next week we're out of time. We'll have to uh, pick up with the story there and see how he deals with this issue.